Hello and welcome to Pipettes in Politics, your science policy podcast. And my name is Ben Korb. I'm the Public Affairs Director for the American Society for Biochemistry and Molecular Biology. And I'm joined by... Andre Porter. And we usually have Daniel Pham here, but he is on assignment. So it is a two-person show today. So I want to thank you for listening. We're going to do a couple of things today. We're going to talk uh, appropriations. We're going to give an update on where that process is. There's been a little bit of movement since we last recorded. We're also going to be sharing an interview with President and CEO of Research America, Mary Woolley. Um, and also, we'll be giving an update on where ASBMB is as it refers to responding to um, an exciting RFI, Request for Information, that came out of NIGMS, the National Institute for General Medical Sciences, over at the NIH. It's a lot of alphabet soup there. Sorry about that. So first, uh, appropriations update. Andre, while I was on the beach, uh, you were working, members of the House of Representatives were working. Where are we with the Labor HHS NIH appropriations bill? So the House uh, last week passed a HHS bill within that bill for, so this is a bill for FY19 funding. The House Appropriations Committee, not the full House. Not the full House. The House Appropriations Committee that covers the labor, health, and human services spending bill. Um, For FY19, they're offering, or they propose, rather, a $1.25 billion increase for the National Institutes of Health. And how does that compare with what the Senate had proposed for FY19? So the Senate uh, proposed $2 billion. So there's a plus up on both sides. The Senate is a little more, of course. Uh, but yeah, that's $2 billion as opposed to the $1.25 proposed by the House. And, and that, that's been pretty much the kind of standard MO recently, right. correct? So this uh, over, as we've had these year-over-year increases in the NIH's budget, which have been really appreciated, um, We've seen usually the Senate mark, the Senate number, mm-hmm. is a little bit higher than the House's number. That's just how the process has gone. And recently, it seems like they've combined them instead of... Uh, kind of added one. them together instead <laughs> right. of splitting the difference. Right. right. So so the so we've approved, a, or the House Appropriations Committee approved a $1.25 billion increase for the NIH. That compares to the $2 billion increase in the Senate. Um is there any other details out of that that we need to cover or be concerned about? Uh, no, not when it comes to the NIH. Okay, and and we had reported earlier when the numbers, when there was a draft bill, every institute in the NIH sees an increase with this proposal that came out of the House. Um, those numbers are available, and we'll have a link to them here um, on the blog that's associated with this podcast. Um, there were initially some reports that some institutes saw a cut to... Um, to their budget. Um, the NCI, um, the um, National Institute for Mental Health. Um, it turns out after doing some some analysis by some of our colleagues and some other associations, there actually isn't a cut. There was just actually a, there, there was a technical error in the bill legislation in which funding that came from the 21st Century Cures Act, which is some mandatory funding for the NIH, was double counted, both um, out of the this Cures funding and Um, in the appropriations bill, and there was just a correction to that. So if you've heard that there was a cut to some of the institutes, that's inaccurate. Um, There wasn't a cut. Every institute is seeing an increase. So the House bill um, is positive for as it relates to NIH. There are other controversies within this House bill. Certainly um, in the news, the issue of reunification of families from the border uh, and border crossings and that issue um, 
the Department of Health and Human Services is the agency that's responsible for that reunification. And um, the issue there has been getting those families together and the costs associated with doing that. And that's funding that would come out of this bill. So that was certainly one of the points um, one of the points that was made and discussed a great deal during this particular markup. Um, also, um, while the NIH does well in this bill, some of the other public health funding agencies, the CDC, um, SAMHSA, which deals with uh, some mental health and addiction issues, some of the other public health agencies um, aren't treated as generously as the NIH is. And that's always cause for concern because public health is a continuum. And we certainly focus our attention here at ASBMB on research and the importance of, of biomedical research and, and, and basic research and understanding how the body works. Um, the American public doesn't benefit from that research until um, the research is translated, until that translated research is put into clinical, um, clinical trials, until clinical trials turn into drugs on the market, until drugs on the market are used by doctors and clinicians all across the country. So there's a chain reaction that goes along and we want to make sure that all, all segments of the chain are doing really well. Um, one other appropriations update that I learned and I wanted to share is that the Senate is taking these two weeks, this end of July period, to try to mold together the Labor HHS appropriation bill with the Senate's Defense Appropriations Bill in an effort to move both of these rather large appropriation bills through the process and get a vote on the floor of the Senate. This would be a positive thing for us and for the NIH because the Labor H bill tends to be one that doesn't get through the process or make it over the finish line because of controversial provisions, because of family unification dollars, because of a lot of the social um, safety net programs that are included in this piece of legislation that end up being kind of controversial and political hot potatoes. By connecting it to the defense appropriation, it sort of clears the path a little bit for, or at least lowers the resistance level to getting this through. So maybe the House will take a similar approach. We don't know. But the Senate is trying to move clumps of appropriations bills through their process together, and they've decided to connect those two. So these are exciting developments. Um, again, from a dollars and cents standpoint, the NIH appears to be doing well and slated to get an increase. Um, but none of these things are done. Uh, there's some talk um, in some uh, budget expert uh, circles about uh, the possibility of a government shutdown because of just the p politics involved in this process. We're going to watch that um, and, and keep you all informed on that. But at least um, the things that we're watching, the kind of touchstones that we have indicate we may have another good year for NIH funding coming forward, which would be good. And we all benefit from moving forward. The next thing we want to talk about is less policy wonky and more ASBNB and what we're doing to get involved. And so, Andre, um, an email just went out to the ASBNB membership last week. Um, why don't you tell the listeners who are members or maybe aren't members what that was and how people can get involved in what we're trying to do this summer? Sure. So this is kind of a an annual event for ASBNB. It's called August is for Advocacy. Each year, around this time, July, June, we sent out a call for our members, members of the scientific community, members of the community at large, um, to meet with their legislators during August recess to talk about the importance of science funding or research in general and how it impacts their lives, kind of giving their legislators kind of the personal touch, so to speak, 
about research and how it impacts their constituents. Um, as you mentioned, the email went out uh, last week to our membership, but we're opening it up to everybody, anybody who wants to be involved, members or not. Um, you can go to asbnb.org backslash August Advocacy if you want to sign up and join our cohort. Uh, we'll, we will also be holding a webinar next week, uh, July 25th at 1.30 p.m. Eastern um, to give you kind of an overview of what August is for Advocacy is, kind of a how-to, how to get involved. And if you sign up to participate in August is for Advocacy, we will send you information. We will help you um, set up your meetings, give you talking points, give mail you a folder full of beautifully designed um, handouts, kind uh, of help walk you through every part of the process uh, with meeting with your legislators and talking about research funding. And I think it's research. important to note, uh, research, exactly. Yeah, research, yeah. Um, you know, look, the beginning of this podcast talked about funding. Funding is certainly an issue that a lot of people care about and tend to connect with when it comes to um, advocacy. Our August advocacy effort is not strictly dollars and cents. Um, We understand and recognize and support the fact that um, supporting science is sometimes supporting the dollars that that invest in it, but sometimes it's supporting scientists. Um, And so perhaps you care a great deal about um, immigration policy and and helping to ensure that the best and brightest that want to come to America to do science and to get involved can do so and can do so comfortably in an environment that's um, healthy for them. Um, That is something that you can talk about. Whether you want to talk about diversity, um, that is an issue that you can discuss. Um, We have a variety, whether you're talking about STEM education issues, um, we have a variety of things that you can that you can discuss. We have talking points on a lot of those things, and you also have the freedom to do that on your own. So um, I think that we want to make sure this isn't just a go and ask for money, kind of pass the hat sort of effort. This is an effort to connect scientists with the policymakers that represent them to talk about the issues that are important to science. And we recognize that it's more than dollars. So uh, I think we wanted to make that point clear to you. Um, So uh, get involved. As Andre said, go to asbnb.org slash advocacy slash slash August advocacy. Or you can do asbnb.org slash advocacy slash August advocacy. But I sure did a bit <laughs> for for anybody who wants to just jump on. Um, so again, it's asbnb.org backslash August advocacy. That's great. And there will be a link to that in the broadcast or the, the blog that's connected to this podcast. And after the break, we're going to take a break right now. After the break, I'm going to be joined by Mary Woolley. Where we'll be talking about science advocacy and getting involved. This is Pipettes in Politics, and we'll be right back. Like this but want more? Why not visit the ASBMB Policy Blog, where you'll see news and analysis on all things Washington. Visit www.policy.asbmb.org. back to Pipettes and Politics. As always, this is Ben Korb, with the Public Affairs Director for ASBMB, and I'm excited and honored to be joined by Mary Woolley, who is the President and CEO of Research America. Thank you for joining me, Mary. 
Great to be talking with you, Ben. Um, since the NIH's budget has been growing for the past several years, um, advocacy has worked and we can pack up our tent and go home and back to the labs. Is that right? Not even close. Okay. Uh, t tell me a little bit about how, um, how and why scientists getting involved has been helpful in moving the needle and how Research America has helped to kind of harness that energy. Well, first of all, let me underscore over and over again that we're not even close to where we should be in putting all the opportunity in science to work, in finding solutions to what ails us in this country. We're, we're, putting, we're allowing way too many qualified research projects to end up on the cutting room floor. We're discouraging young scientists, and we haven't, by any stroke of the imagination, made up for all those years of flat funding. So uh, we believe very strongly that it's time to put advocacy to work at the level it can deliver so that science can deliver. Excellent. And putting advocacy to work means more scientists um, leaving the ivory tower, the literal one and the one in their minds that's keeping them from engaging with the non-science trained public and with people who are currently serving or want to serve in our Congress. We know from public opinion surveys that we commission regularly that 80% of the American public say they want the science community to engage with elected and want to be elected uh, representatives and want scientists to be connected to the public. But that isn't happening. We know it's not happening. Right. How do you, um, so at ASBNB, we're running an advocacy training program. Mm -hmm. So we have a, a, the first cohort that we've done it. We have 10 scientists across the career spectrum from undergraduates to PIs in the lab um, who are kind of learning more than just the how to call your member of Congress, but really do a deeper dive in being advocates. And a conversation we had um, just a couple of weeks ago uh, in one of our courses was what's the definition of a special interest? And because there's that negative connotation just out in the general public that special interests are bad and special interest groups are bad, um, I'd argue that scientists are a special interest and that, that we should embrace that. Uh, I wonder what your perspective is. You know, what, or right. If people talk to you about that, do you have a concern about being viewed by the public as a special interest group? Well, our concern is that scientists learn how to say and convey, I work for you four words, I work for you, I serve the public's interest, which by the way, they have in common with people who are elected by the public. That's what they have in common, serving the public's interest. So by starting a conversation not with the mindset Gia might be perceived as having a special, a being a special interest, somehow a special pleading, it's completely upside down. The purpose is to be accountable to be humble in the face of their opportunity to work with federal dollars, typically, sometimes also private and philanthropic dollars, to serve a value and an aspiration that they hold in common with the public, ultimately getting to better health, quality of life, a more secure and more prosperous nation. That's something to be proud of and to talk about uh, openly and uh, with the expectation that people are going to ask questions including questions that might be critical, which itself becomes an opportunity not to give a lecture, you're wrong and I'm right, but rather to say, gee, you sound skeptical. I was trained to be skeptical, 
scientists are trained to ask questions, and that's what you're doing. Right. So we have that in common. Let's talk about it. Sure, that's great. Have you found, um, are there examples that you can think of um, members who have been turned either um, in more support of, say, increasing funding or supporting the issues that are important to the scientists who might be listening to this, who maybe it's a member of Congress who wasn't familiar with or on board with some of the research issues that we took care about and that we discuss, um, but because of those interactions with caring constituents and vocal advocates, their perspective began to change. Well, there are been um, uh, examples that we, in fact, have heard about over the years, many examples of members of the science community saying that they had an impact um, or believe they did on a given member of Congress who happened to be sitting next to them on an airplane one day and they instead of kind of hiding out from being a scientist really engaged in a conversation um, without naming names so this happened a couple times uh, with people in Texas and um, another person I think of and who's very actively involved with Research America since he left the Congress is former congressman and former governor Mike Castle, who's chair of our board right now. And he um, was quoted in a recent scientific journal um, during an interview and has also spoken broadly of the importance of scientists visiting him, along with members of the JDRF, the Juvenile Diabetes Research Foundation, back in the late 90s, early parts of this century, to talk about the importance of stem cell research. And he, um, who's a Republican, he um, formed a coalition in the Congress with the Democrat, Diana DeGette, and really turned some people around. Now, this time it was congressman to congressman, but with the addition of scientists and members of the patient community talking together to assure there was a, a going to be a solid support from the Congress, not 100%, that's more than we <laughs> were asking for, right. but solid support so that the Bush administration, the George W. Bush administration, subsequently got on board as well. That's great. And, I mean, we've been seeing the kind of fruit of our labor over the past several years with budget increases happening, um, three appropriations processes in a row, mm -hmm. um, proposed increases kind of out there on paper now. Um, how long do you think, um, how much longer do you think we can continue to push and be successful? Do you think there's a point in which Congress might have that um, the NIH fatigue, that we've helped you now go away? How can we as advocates avoid that um, and continue on a growth pattern into the future? Well, Ben, I think the first step is not assuming that that will happen. Um, there's some other things we value in this country that we don't think about having fatigue about. Defense is one. Um, and I think using defense just as an analogy, when you're talking about defending one's health and your family's health, ultimately the health of the nation, uh, there's no reason to think there's ever going to be fatigue around this issue. If anything, there's going to be increasing awareness that we're not doing enough. Uh, what are we waiting for? 
And that is literally what comes out of the mouths of people who may have just received a diagnosis in their family for some disease or condition that we don't have answers for yet or for which we have Im very imperfect answers. Sure. Um, why aren't we doing more? Or it could be a policymaker who's looking at the price tag of the opioid epidemic or the Alzheimer's epidemic or the obesity epidemic and the list goes on. Why aren't we doing more? It's pay me now or pay me later, a lot more right. later. Right. No reason to think there's going to be fatigue. Sure. So um, what advice do you give to scientists who are um, beginning, let's say, the long road um, to becoming a vocal advocate? You certainly um, learn how to say, I work for you, and, mm -hmm. and how to talk about your science to the lay public or to a policymaker. Uh, what other pieces of advice do you like to give people if they're going to get more involved in advocacy? First of all, to um, take it uh, one step at a time. Uh, that I work for you absolutely is an easy start, I can assure you. Another one is a message frame that we call then, now, and imagine. By saying, just for example, remember back in the old days, which weren't that long ago, that a diagnosis of HIV AIDS was a death thre um, threat, a killer. That was it. A death sentence, sorry. Um, now, thanks to this nation's investment, in biomedical research, HIV-AIDS is a manageable chronic disease, kind of like diabetes. But imagine if we would continue to invest, that we can put both of those curses in the history books where they belong. What we're doing with Then, Now, and Imagine is aligning with an aspiration and that every all of us share, um, and at the same time, uh, connecting some dots about how we didn't just get to some reasonable place right now. It took a lot of investment in research. So that's another kind of trick of the trade of learning how to be conversant uh, about science in ways that don't involve terms like molecular biology, frankly. Right. Right. If somebody wants to know what that means, they'll ask you. Sure. But insisting that they know uh, may be a conversation ender rather than extender. Right. Uh, how do you feel, that, particularly for folks who are in the biochemistry field, um, the argument of kind of basic research mm -hmm. and ha helping a policymaker to understand that an investment today or support today um, will lead to better patient outcomes in the future, but that future might be 20 years from now? Mm -hmm. um, how do you suggest or help people to kind of frame their, their, their message in that way, right? Because we have members who will say, well, I'm not a cancer researcher, or I don't research Alzheimer's, I research how proteins fold. And so they want to be accurate in what they talk about, but we also want to inspire the person that they're talking to. Right. So a couple things, Ben. First of all, to be aware that um, public opinion surveys since the early 80s uh, which was before Research America was um, launched in 1989, but we picked up one of the questions from the National Science Board in the early 80s about, uh, in verbatim, about public support for basic science. And it turns out there hasn't been a decrease in the approximately 65 to 70% of the public who agrees that we should be funding basic science, even if it doesn't provide immediate solutions or answers. Nothing's changed since the early 80s. So number one, for the science community to think that the public is negative about it is 
um, a data absent statement. Okay. So first get with the picture, if you will. Right. But secondly, um, in talking about basic science, it is useful to make a link to better health. Rather than to say, I just want you to be clear, Congressman or whomever, I'm not a cancer researcher, I'm not an Alzheimer's researcher, not start the conversation that way. Start the conversation with, I'm funded by the National Institutes of Health. That's all you have to say. And my work with, as it's funded by NIH, is with, and then fill in the blank. Um, and my hope, my, my um, expectation is that it will help my colleagues who are in the clinical research area and others uh, to advance their research. We can't predict exactly when and where that will happen, um, but we're confident that there's value there. Right, right. What other sorts of resources or outlets can you think of for people who want to learn? Uh, ASBNB offers a Art of Communication course, and, and I talked about the, the ATP that we do. What other sorts of uh, programs or initiatives are out there that you can think of that scientists can uh, get involved with to help them become better communicators and kind of particularly use that in, in their role as advocates? Well, thank you for asking, because Research America conducts workshops for members of the science community, including the basic science community, at universities around the country. We're happy to uh, be on site or to talk to folks if they come to Washington. Um, we know how to help basic scientists um, frame their case, if you will, for um, as an advocate and through some role playing uh, can help with practice in that regard. The goal that we have, and I know increasingly is shared by others around the country, is to make it normal and easy and absolutely expected of everybody in the science community as they're being trained and subsequently throughout their career to make public engagement and advocacy part of their repertoire. Mm -hmm. We're gonna get there. And it, it, we're ready right now to have more and more leaders take that on as something they stand for and want to build into the curriculum. I don't mean lots and lots of courses, but I do mean uh, providing role models and incentives for the science community to get involved in talking to non-scientists. Great. And how do you... As you look at kind of the path that we've come across, where we were from, say, the doubling and then the period of flat budget um, and now kind of a new growth pattern that we're on, um, I asked Howard Garrison the same question. Um, are you optimistic about the, the future and where things are going? Are you concerned about the path that we're on and whether we can sustain it? I just wonder what your insights are. Uh, as someone who's been a leading voice in the community, kind of how you feel about going forward. Well, strikingly to me, there are several components in place right now that were true just before doubling got underway. One was that our economy was in very good shape. We're experiencing that today. Another was that leaders in the Congress of the key committees that appropriate dollars for NIH had commitment to NIH in their hearts. Mm -hmm as well as in the tip of their tongue as a legacy issue. We have that again today with Congressman Tom Cole and Senator Roy Blunt and their counterparts, I might add, on the Democrat side of the aisle. Uh, but it's especially powerful when Republicans are um, 
in the chairs as appropriators um, because they tend to be less willing to spend from the public purse. So when they decide that here's, here's um, a priority, i.e. the NIH, and for that matter, NSF and CDC, FDA as well, um, that's when we see real uh, liftoff for big, bold initiatives like the doubling. I'd say one other thing since we're on the topic of doubling. The fact that that, that we experienced a um, flatlining after the doubling was more about an externality that none of us is going to forget, called 9-11, than anything else. American priorities changed dramatically after 9-11, and we were very fortunate to continue the doubling because it kind of uh, bookended Or the tail end of that was after, right? It was after, um, but the commitments had already been made at the highest levels, including President Bush. Um, otherwise, I don't know that we would have been able to even complete the doubling for all of the emphasis that the Congress had given to it. So uh, one hopes and trusts that we're never going to have that kind of experience again in this nation and that we can continue to see strong, po strong priorities rise to the level that we at Research America and others believe they belong. Great. Well, I want to thank you for... Uh, for your time here with me, uh, for the work that you do, and for the work that Research America does. Um, it's been great. So thank you very much, Mary, for giving me some time. Ben, great to talk to you, as always. Keep doing good things. Great. Thank you. And this has been Pipe Bats and Politics, and we'll be right back. Welcome back to Pipettes and Politics. I want to thank Mary for her time and for sharing her perspectives on things. Um, so thank you again, um, and thank you for listening. Hope you enjoyed that interview. Um, we are, at the time of this recording, putting our finishing touches on um, the NIGMS RFI request for information on strategies for enhancing postdoctoral career transitions to promote faculty diversity. This is a really exciting and interesting initiative that's being led by John Lorsch at NIGMS. Um, we, the uh, ASBMB, the Public Affairs Advisory Committee, and the Minority Affairs Committee have jointly worked together on the response to this RFI. Um, we're going to be submitting that today. Uh, the due date is today. Uh, we're excited to be doing that. The, uh, Andre, I'm correct, we'll have a, a blog that'll talk about the RFI and what we've done. Is that correct? Correct. So it'll cover the RFI with the kind of the crux of the positions are what are the highlights from our, and we'll also hyperlink our full response. Um, and also talk about kind of the, the steps forward. I think it's of note to look at this RFI as a uh, pilot, and they've mentioned this at the, the last advisory committee to the director, that this RF, this program that's being led by GM will pilot the, the National Institutes of Health's um, diversity efforts. So it's, it's very important that we responded to it, but it's also important to the community. Uh, that, that GM is taking this step forward. And, and we'll have a little bit more details for this in our next podcast, but we wanted to just let our listeners know that um, ASBMB is submitting to that, and we should watch kind of what the NIH's response is to that. Um, also, you know, this is the summertime, so from a policy standpoint, sometimes move a little bit slower as maybe the House goes into recess, the Senate 
may or may not be in some amount of recess going on right now. Um, but we're excited because we do have more uh, guest interviews coming. Um, our next podcast will be joined by Rush Holt, the president and CEO of AAAS and former member of Congress, where we'll be talking about the um, how scientists view candidacy and running for office. So that's interesting. And we also have some other really interesting uh, interviews with leaders in the public policy and science policy field. So we'll be getting to those in future episodes. Um, I want to thank you for listening. This has been Ben Korb and Andre Porter. And um, thanks for listening. And this has been Pipettes in Politics, and we'll catch you next time.